When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Benjamin Boyce. Welcome to my channel, whatever that means to you. I had an awesome discussion with James Lindsay today. This guy, his brain is like a lawn thing that does lawn things. And all you have to do is just like give it a little tug and a cord. And all of a sudden it's just going. So we hit the ground running. We talk about social justice run amok. We get into, um, so James Lindsay is one of the chief architects of the Sokol Squared Affair with Helen Pluckrose and Peter Bogosian. And they are, all three of them have been heavily researching the infiltration of what they called applied postmodernism, Mixed in with social justice that has now captured, one, the academia kind of stratosphere, as well as other institutions of, you know, media making and meaning making and so on. In this discussion, we talk a lot, a lot about a lot of range of issues, but mostly concerning how social justice infiltrates uh, different organizations or dif different sorts of discussion spaces and where the roots are within postmodernism and different ways to counteract that by using real life examples such as the Evergreen State College as what happens when this ideology goes full bore and also the ways in which social justice activism is very much like religion and why it is so appealing to us uh, because it's it's kind of hijacking different sorts of modules that we have in our brain. Anyways, this is a wonderful, fabulous, excellent conversation. I'm so proud to be able to get James on my channel. Let's dive right in. I hope you're ready. Go. It's good to talk to you finally, though. I tell you what. I'm really uh, excited to, to actually hear your voice and my ears responding to my voice and yours. Yeah, right. You said you just got back from New York. You were debating with Stephen Hicks? Is that no, no, no. Stephen Hicks debated with a postmodernist named Thaddeus Russell, the renegade university guy. Hmm. Um, the proposition on the table was um, postmodernism is necessary for uh, individual liberty or a politic of individual liberty or something like that. Um, Stephen Hicks mopped the floor with Thaddeus. Really? Uh, I, objectively, they have a method. Well, I don't know what objectively, but there's a method for scoring that debate in real time. So unlike the deal where, you know, oh, I think this person won, I think that, and everybody goes and argues. In an Oxford-style debate, they actually have people vote for the proposition before the debate, and then they have people vote for the proposition after the debate. And the person who moved more of the audience mm. wins. Okay. And so Stephen moved uh, more of the audience by a factor almost of three. Oh, then, okay. so he won handily according to the rules of of engagement for the debate. So it's not a subjective. I don't know. It's a quasi subjective or whatever yeah. opinion. By the rules of the game, it's an objective opinion that, yeah. that Stephen won the debate um, by a wide margin. 
Now, did yeah. they agree on the definition of postmodernism before they began wrestling with it or its usefulness? So I honestly would tell you that I don't think they did, uh, although they definitely were in pretty close agreement for the most part. Uh, Thaddeus seems to have, um, being the, taking the postmodernist side, seemed to have a pretty flexible definition of what it meant. Um, yeah. Uh, I could, I mean, I saw through it pretty clearly, but every time Stephen, I think this probably worked to his advantage quite a lot. Every time Stephen articulated what postmodernism claims and what its proponents say and think, you have Thaddeus sitting in his chair nodding. Okay. Yes, that is correct. Yes, that is correct. Okay. All right. That's interesting. Um, you, you've been studying this and versions of this for a long time. You just wrote a tweet that this is basically your expertise now. Yeah. How did you stumble into this? Because I knew at one point you were kind of, uh, evangelical atheist and you would, I'm uh, using that light later, maybe. No, I'm certainly not. And I'm certainly not that now, which is kind of fun. Uh, I've stumbled into it the way that all people, and stumble's the wrong word, get sucked into <laughs> is the right word. The way all people get sucked into it, the, the culture war, of course. Okay. In fact, Peter Bogosian works with us, you know, and he has this way of phrasing it. I don't know if he's right or not. It's kind of gaining traction within the so-called intellectual dark web community of culture war 1.0. That'd be kind of the atheism versus religion thing. And then this is Culture War 2.0. I think that probably takes a pretty short view of history to call yeah. them one and two. But at any rate, um, certainly something shifted in the the culture war as it has raged over the past couple of decades or so. And um, something new is happening. And so we got sucked in through that. We got sucked in actually through our involvement in atheism, where we watched mm-hmm. uh, a splinter movement within atheism that called itself atheism plus and a handful of kind of um similar sympathizing kind of but not all in uh blogging platforms it was the big thing at the time take the take up the charge of social justice and we watched that hollow out the atheism movement and watched it collapse and meanwhile we're watching the big figures, the people whom Peter especially, but we knew and respected people like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and uh, the likes being accused of various forms of kind of secret bigotry mm-hmm. that would manifest here and there. And we, we got curious, how is this happening? Why is this happening? Why are there's why are these peculiar definitions for racism and sexism that don't match the dictionary, but do have grounding somewhere else in academic theory. Why are they being foisted into common parlance discussions? And so that would probably have been anywhere reaching back almost to 2011 and 12, although I came late to that game and was told that there was a huge flare-up of it before that in 7, 8, and 9 Hmm. uh, that peaked maybe just before 2011. And you weren't taken in by that? When you first encountered, no, or were you? Were um, you kind of uh, okay? So certainly, I saw, I saw the points that were being made that there were legitimate issues of social justice regarding the way religion was being put into practice uh, and informing both social and political discourses, which I can now say with confidence, I know what that means um, through the postmodern understanding. Uh, So I did understand, I I, I saw some of the point and I did participate that um, there was an issue 
And this is actually, I think, how this happened. There was an issue. There were legitimate issues with social justice that were being um, legitimized through uh, religious claims and argument. And uh, so there were a lot of people that were being drawn in toward the atheism movement because of issues of social justice, particularly regarding women and homosexuals or other sexual minorities. And certainly people like uh, Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens, the kind of the, the big vanguard there, were talking about that and pointing it out because there was a great deal of legitimacy to that claim. But what I think was happening is you had these kind of old vanguard people who I'll classify as rationalist atheists who were pointing out issues of social justice. And then you had people who were legitimately just there for the social justice. They were mad at the church for being mean to gays. That okay. was the main reason that they came to the atheism movement. And that that itself, you know, made many good points, but it rapidly became apparent that it was also its own toxic entity. So already by my involvement in the atheism movement really started in 2012. And so already by 2013, I was like, wait a minute. The, when the religious people are saying, atheism is a religion. I don't think that's true in the formal sense, but I think that definitely a religious movement has built up within the so-called atheist community. And uh, the splinter cell that gained the most prominence was what was called Atheism Plus. I certainly was not taken in hmm. by the idea that to be a so-called, quote, good atheist, you have to be participating in social justice, which was the vector upon which that, that went. So, uh, yes and no, but mostly no, as things often go, was is, is the answer to the question of how my involvement with that went. Yeah. Um, and do you feel that there is uh, just a pattern of behavior that any group of human beings will eventually uh, kind of congeal around some sort of religious or pseudo-religious framework? Is that just how people um, work in aggregate? That's complicated. And so I guess we would need to define what we what I mean by religion, or you can define. No, 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 that's religion. fine. Yeah, I'm comfortable with that. Um, because that isn't an, exactly what happened to me in 2013 was that I became very curious about that. And I got very, very tired of the philosophical arguments about religion. And I kind of saw them as a dead end. You know, does God exist and the problem of evil and yada, yada, yada. Yeah. And I felt like this is just people chasing their tails now for probably going on 500 years and it just wasn't interesting any longer to me. Um, plus there are heavy hitters doing a better job of it than I was. And so I became bored with that conversation and turned to what I didn't see a lot of people doing, which was the underlying psychology of religion. What draws people to be religious? What does it look like when they are being religious? That led me to study moral psychology, religious psychology, and the psychology of authoritarianism for a couple of years pretty um, studiously, although in a self-guided fashion, which would clearly leave holes. Um, okay. So I studied it there, and in 2015 published a book called Everybody is Wrong About God that was just basically a— uh, I, I mean, I was going to say it's basically a hammer strike against the, the whole uh, idea that atheism— uh, is needed, uh, that atheism is uh, impossible to be considered a religion, because I saw the religious movement happening. And I wanted to, but ultimately it had a more um, gentle intention behind it, which was um, 
I wanted to understand what people who believe in God mean when they say God, because they clearly mean something that's important to them. And I wanted to try to develop a point of synthesis between the view between atheists who don't believe that there's any supernatural thing or especially any gods and the religious people who are talking about about something that's being very core to their experience in life it wasn't satisfactory for me to say oh well, they're just delusional mm. it it was important for me to try to understand not on theological terms not on their own terms but on terms that are kind of more commonly accessible to everybody okay. what people mean when they talk about God. So I looked into that and as I, that's where the religious psychology interest came in. And then I really started drilling into it. Felt like I significantly answered the question. Uh, I'm not complete, I'm sure, but uh, made a significant approach at the question. And uh, meanwhile, identified that certainly the thing that was happening in Atheism Plus, which was having, it had a few features, was satisfying those points. So on the one hand, it was people searching for a community. I think that's an extremely important thing. It's also one of the three primary psychosocial reasons people become religious, according to the psychology of religion, is to have a community of people around them that are effectively, in many regards, like-minded. And what we really should say by that is like-moraled. Okay. They have a similar worldview, to kind of use another vague word, that contains... uh, well, I'll just back up a step. Another one of the, the needs that people are trying to meet, according to the psychology of religion, is meaning-making structure, which isn't just like personal meaning, but meaning in a broader sense. It's an attributional schema is what they're sometimes called. So in terms of when people are having a common worldview here, they have a shared sense of um, phenomena of the world. So a phenomenological attribution schema, how the world came to be, how the world operates. Uh, And the atheist thing, that was certainly usually science. And it was, Hmm. in some ways, actually science taken as a belief structure, not just science as a a rigorous process. Um, Secondly, they'll often have a moral attribution schema, an explanation for what morals are what the right morals are to have and how we can justify those morals. And in the religion, which, they, which goes to say that this is how we're going to treat people. And this yes. is the weight of, of my actions in the world. Exactly. And that's, that feeds back into the need for community, of course, because that's how you regulate and police and define your community and its hierarchical structure that is hmm. always going to form. Okay. Um, that's one of the three dimensions of what they call psychosocial valuation is how well someone conforms to the local moral structure or observes the pieties, if you will, of that structure. Okay. And so the third thing that people turn to look, look for is control. And so all of a sudden you have this faction within the atheism community. That's not all kind of, you know, libertarian do as you will, as long as you don't harm anybody else but rather saying you must subscribe to these tenets, and in this case it was social justice, in order to be a good atheist. Um, so there was that aspect. I actually skipped a thing, though. I got confused. So <laughs> pardon pardon my stupidity, which is which is legion. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, my worst enemies are time and my own brain. The third, <laughs> the third thing that people are looking for in a meaning-making structure is purpose. It's teleology. They, they want to know what their purpose is, and they want to have a mission. So obviously social justice 
does tack on a mission. So if you start tying in this notion of what it means to be good as an atheist, there's your moral structure, it provides purpose, and then you attach it to, um, I was going to say science, but uh, some kind of a phenomenological explanation. In this case, it actually was heavily corrupted with social constructivism, as it is mm. called. The idea that things uh, like gender, race, and so on are thought are best thought of only as social constructions. Uh, and and the, with the heavy in, emphasis on how they control moral behavior. So that, that takes the, sure. the place of what you're talking sure. about when people look sure. for control in religion. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, the third the third big reason people turn to religion is, is to obtain a sense of control and a multitude of dimensions, self-control, uh, mm. that they, they tap into their moral framework for community control. But also, so that's where the moral application comes in, the policing of the community to make sure that it stays cohesive. But then also hmm. control over the world in the sense that they have some action that they can take to control the world. Religi religious people um, often turn to prayer at the last desperate moment, that if hmm. they pray, that maybe there's this, when, when you know, you try to, your, depending on how religious somebody is and how they take it on, but... Uh, you try your hand at the world, things still aren't going, you you feel like things are out of control, and you drop to your knees in humility and pray. And so they have this last-ditch effort feeling of active participation and control over the world through some... Uh, Surrender, some actually. Structure. Sure, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a very passive action. Yeah, that got replaced MJ. in the social justice world, though, with with social media campaigning. You send tweet, you're like, oh. angry, 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 send tweet, and now you've affected the world. <laughs> That's hashtag campaign, hashtag I'm pissed off, now you've affected the world. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I was like, wow, that's there's a parallel. The other thing they have, uh, people tend to look for psychologically. So people do look for, in their desperate moment, you know, an, a, set, a pathway to active control over the world. But they also want to have a sense that there's a passive sense of control and for religious people, that one's really prominent. You know, it's uh, the the really ne not fair meme of it is Jesus take the wheel. Um, yeah. The, you know, God won't give you more than you can handle is another vari variation on that theme. Or um, things are happening, but divine providence is there and will make sure things come out right. Yeah. Or everything happens for a reason is a vague one that's not even necessarily religious. Mm -hmm. So... There's this sense of passive control, and that one's a little bit different in social justice because um, I can show you where it shows up, but in general, being materialist and not believing in supernatural powers that are going to be able to intervene or influence the causes of events, they feel like that that's got to be put in their own hands, and then they put it in terms of... Uh, hashtag campaigns and social media mm -hmm. mobs and so on. But it also manifests, if you want to see where it manifests, so I was looking for these parallels to understand what yeah. was going on, um, manifests in the idea of the right side of history. History okay. is bending inexorably in a certain direction, yeah. and there's a right side and a wrong side of history, and um, that implies that there's some overarching idea of control toward in this case justice or whatever it happens to be yeah well so that's it's, how it's I got a justification in a way yes absolutely so that's how i got sucked into that and that's how the religious psychology played in and so all of a sudden i became kind of this like weirdly corner expert in certain aspects of how the social justice movement was operating within the context of the atheist community which 
revealed that yes, indeed, um, it acted in certain ways that are easily identifiable as religious. And so the, those accusations from religious people were somewhat accurate. And that was a place that got people kind of mad at me. Um, and it, but it led me also to become more interested in how that worked. Wait, were uh, they mad at you because you were, were revealing something uncomfortable for them or it was a betrayal of a sense? Why do you think that you attracted anger with that uh, formula? Um, both of those reasons, I would say, were part of it. I don't ever like to try to guess at people's motivations too much, but also the cognitive dissonance that it induces. That atheism can't possibly be religious, but here it's acting religious in some other way. Okay. And so it, it was treated. I mean, I was openly calling for the end of atheism as a movement too, which wasn't, you know, really widely positively received by people who wanted to have an atheist community around themselves to give yeah. their lives meaning and community and, and, and all of that. So I did to answer the question that sent us down this rabbit trail. Um, the, I did see commonalities that will lead people within certain, not all people, hashtag, not all people within, um, political and ideological and social movements or organizations often to take up religious-like architectures. I don't think, actually, that everybody does. But I do think right. that there, a certain subset of people often will. And whether that's what the reasons for that are are not clear to me. So I can't really speak to it. But insofar as a religious-like structure allows people to act in concert, it gives them power. And and it, it exerts sure. power within, let's say, the meme space or in, in Twitter and social media. Mm -hmm. We have these, these people. I just sent you before we spoke a one of the most absurd tweets I've seen in a while where a woman <laughs> said that since the 1950s, uh, communist has been a code word for the N-word. And she goes yeah. on this whole argument. But it's not so much that that statement is absurd or stupid. It's that it's got 10,000 likes to it that, that right. makes me raise my eyebrows and get a little worried. Right. Yeah, there is a significant subset of the at least politically active people on Twitter who operate in, in that person's space who find that idea not only not absurd, but tapping into something true enough. Because I can tell you, you know, I have a fairly significant following on Twitter at this point. It's not giant, yeah. but almost 40,000 followers. Right. And I don't think I've ever had a tweet hit 10,000 likes. So, okay. um, I mean, I could just tweet badly. I don't know. But that's a you know, there's a significant population who thinks, you know, who looked at that as my wife talks about when people have a funny, you know, they have a funny hairstyle or their their outfits crazy. She'll look at the person and say that person looked in the mirror this morning and thought, yes. <laughs> and so there are a lot of people who looked at that tweet and thought, yes. Yeah. And so that, that, that is alarming. So it is it is clear that there something is going on there. And that's actually what we became fascinated in coming through the second half of the famous paper writing project, the grievance studies affair that we did and then going forward since then. So probably since. Let's say just to pick a date, Thanksgiving. So last weekend, last week of um, November 2017, from that point forward, we became not superficially interested in what's going on that will lead people to, to feel like those ideas are something you can look at and say, yes, that's tapping into something true and important, but rather to really dig into that and to understand it as though it's something that we uh, believe 
mm. ourselves. So mm. I mentioned at the beginning that I was at the Stephen Hicks debate and um, Thaddeus Russell is representing the the uh, side of postmodernism. And I don't mean any, I mean, I talked to, to Thaddeus afterwards. I think he's an, an interesting guy, a nice guy. Uh, we talked a little bit of length. And so it's not anything here, but I honestly think I probably could have argued his case better than he did after. Because you, you've put it on intentionally from a, from I, a, from a yes. position of doubt. You've allowed yourself to convince yourself. Yes. So you put so, in extra work. Okay. Right. I, I almost, I, I don't think I'm entirely, I, I've started to say that I am, but I don't think I'm fully fluent in uh, postmodern theory and its derivatives. And certainly the older postmodernism, which is what Thaddeus was representing, he called um, social justice anti-postmodern. And in a, one sense, that's actually true. And I, I would like to find commonality with him in that view. Uh, in another sense, I don't think it's true, but that's okay. There, there's disagreement to be had there, but there's a lot of agreement to be had there. So in the older sense, Foucault, Derrida, Leotard, etc., I'm not as conversant in that as I am in its modern descendants, especially over the last maybe 15 years. But in that, are I've there key figures conversant. that you could point to from the the neo uh, postmodern social justice? Folks? Yeah, I mean, it depends on what branch you're looking at. But in particular, the the kind of people who are having the most sway right now are largely critical race educators um, and critical race epistemologists. And epistemology, since that's, you know, not an everyday word, is a word that means how we produce and legitimize and understand and give and receive knowledge. Mm -hmm. It's a study of how you do that. And so um, a handful of those are of rather extreme importance. The most famous by leagues is Robin D'Angelo, mm -hmm. uh, the white fragility progenitor. Um, yeah. Her first paper on that was... 2011, so we're talking about, you know, just the last decade. Um, yeah. Christy Dotson is is another scholar in that field who does excellent philosophical work on bad assumptions, which is a shame. So her, her work is very, very thorough and detailed, but it, it proceeds from unfortunate uh, misunderstandings, if you were to ask me, of how things work. Uh, influential also in a more frightening way would be a woman named Barbara Applebaum. Uh, she's the author of a book called Being Good, Being White. There are, I mean, I can name a ton of them. Yeah. Jose Messina, Medina, Nora Berenstain. And what, uh, what separates Allison them, Bailey. I guess, generally from the, the older crew? So this is actually really interesting. Our contention, so this is where Thaddeus and I would hit our disagreement. Um, our contention is that yes, indeed, social justice is postmodern, but it has, in the sense of using postmodern methods, but it's taken up a meta narrative, which is what postmodernism is supposed to be wholly skeptical of. And that meta narrative started, I mean, it came from the, the leftist politics and views that were always buried within the, say the original French philosophers and sociologists, but it took on a new character in the 1980s and 1990s under the most two pro the two most prominent figures in this regard would have been um, Judith Butler working in queer theory, but more importantly, Kimberly Crenshaw working in critical race, the uh, critical, I can call it critical race theology, critical race theory and um, intersectional critical, legal, critical race, legal theory. 
Uh, yeah, she is the progenitor of intersectionality. She came up with that term in a paper in 1989 and then went to, to pretty, pretty, pretty much went to town defining and clarifying its need in 1991. And at that point, what happened was, um, and this is the birth of the meta narrative, like I said, though, that it came out of previous existing political roots. They said that um, you can't do political work, and Kimberly Crenshaw is explicit about what kind of political work, identity political work. You can't do identity politics unless, if you're willing to deconstruct everything, including identity. So she said, we're going to start by saying that the postmodern thinkers went too far. They have valuable tools that we will employ. They had valuable insights that we should draw upon, but ultimately they were operating from a place of privilege that allowed them to deconstruct even oppression, oppression based on identity in particular. And it's a mark of their privilege that prevented them from being able to realize that they were acting in privilege. So okay. you could almost say that Kimberly Crenshaw's big idea would be where you have Descartes trying to drill down. I don't want to maybe blow her up to this big of a stature like Descartes, but who knows where you have Descartes drilling down to what's one thing I know I can say is true. And he comes out with cogito ergo sum. I think therefore I am here. You have Kimberly Crenshaw drilling down saying, what can I know is true after postmodern deconstruction says that there is no such thing as, as accessible truth. And she drills down and she says, I am oppressed. Therefore I am. And so she, following Bell Hooks, a black, a very famous black uh, feminist at the time, following um, her, came out with a statement that said, there's a fundamental and important difference, especially if you wish to do identity politics, between the statement, I am black, I take on black identity, versus I am a person who happens to be black, which would be the prevailing liberal colorblind, if you will, interpretation of how to deal with the social constructions around race. Okay. So that amnes uh, then provides you uh, an anchor in this postmodern world. So the postmodern world is everything's constantly being deconstructed. We're in a sea of chaos and everything that we assemble out of that is, uh, is tentative at best. Uh, whereas this is trying to say or, or reserve one space or one access to objective reality which is, I guess, the cornerstone also of subjective experience being one's identity. And insofar yes. as one's identity is oppressed, that magnifies that identity, that makes that identity more real than other identities. Would you would you say that that's fair? In a that way? Is, yeah, that's fair. That's correct. It also makes it more salient and something that people need to pay more attention to and focus okay. upon. So, yes, it was definitely a it, it was a sense of saying, you know, we can deconstruct many things using postmodern tools. We can take apart the glue that holds language and meaning, that, that glues language to meaning, for example. We can dissolve glue that holds factors of society together even. Mm -hmm. But the one thing that we should not pour any solvent on, the deconstructive solvent, is oppression based on identity, okay. and therefore identity itself. As, as seen, identity as defined in terms of group membership through which power dynamics have been applied. Uh, and then I say group membership, I mean the social construction of the group. Uh, black, for example, contains many populations, if you ask a biologist, mm -hmm. many different distinct populations of human beings that have 
slightly different and identifiable genetic uh, markers that you could you could trace back. Different populations, but black skin means black. It, that's a social construction around that i that around the color of skin actually. Mm-hmm. And so, or ethnicity, as it were, if their skin happens to be very light, but they happen to be in that lineage. So, the one thing that cannot be dissolved is that. So, in a sense, you can actually say that this is a process of making something sacred. If you turn back to the religious psychology or the moral psychology, Jonathan Haidt has been very eloquent on talking about the role of sacredness and taboo. Uh, that was his, most of his early social psychology work was in that. And he poses some very disturbing questions. If you go read some of his previous books, the happiness yeah. hypothesis, the righteous mind. Um, so what this is, is a process of making something sacred. Mm-hmm. So identity as defined through, uh, socially constructed group membership became a sacred object. And in particular, it was following the kind of thoughts of Derrida or even following the thoughts of Foucault, who are both obsessed with power. Derrida, how it manifests in language. Foucault and how language works to maintain and, and, and uh, legitimize mm. it. The idea was that um, those socially constructed groups have to be understood in terms of their oppression versus dominance, a binary of power, what's called a hierarchical binary that contains a power dynamic. And so that was reified in the early 1990s, the late 80s leading up to, and then the early 1990s, such that by probably no later than 1994 or five, it was pretty entrenched. By early 2000s, you had uh, considerable scholars writing um, there's sort of this last gasp, dying gasp for the old forms of scholarship into critical analysis of society, which would have been socialist in orientation. They called them materialist or, or radical in orientation. Uh, but now there's this dying gasp. Like I remember seeing a paper, a, a last case for, uh, for materialist feminism or something like that at one point, uh, or why we need to bring back materialist feminism. And you had people doing postmortems by 2004, 2005 of okay. 2006, where no longer is the old way of thinking how we do things. We now have this intersectional framework and there's been this massive shift to focusing on identity for the purpose of identity politics. And so what happened for this new crop is generations come and generations go. And Mm -hmm. the idea sort of is if you have something that appears to be established as knowledge through the publication in peer-reviewed journals and books and then being taught, and then a generation goes by, that second generation, the child generation, cites the big thinkers from the moment before. And then... So then at that point, yeah, the canon gets built. And then in the second generation, the grandchild generation starts taking those things for granted. Everybody's known this for a long time, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which, by the way, Foucault would have a field day with (laughs) rip apart. But that's how so. Well, that's exactly what Foucault said is the problem. That's exactly what he said is how power works through language is that things come to be taken as known and taken for granted as known. And that legitimizes what it is possible to call true and false. And people just take it as though it's a given. And people who fall outside of that, who are dissident to it or question or doubt it are um, somehow broken. This would be, you know, on his history of madness, maybe a draw from there or even in discipline and punish. And they have to be brought back into the dominant paradigm or considered crazy or uh, um, 
somehow otherwise deviant. So Foucault yeah. would actually, this is where Thaddeus was saying that this is an anti-postmodern thing, although the methods, as Kimberly Crenshaw was absolutely explicit about, are definitely postmodern in their orientation. They have taken up a meta-narrative. They've taken up a grand sweeping explanation, a thing that cannot be questioned or deconstructed, and made it real uh, and affected a power dynamic on it. And there's yeah. even theory explaining how it's a Derridian idea that what, to deconstruct an existing power dynamic, you maintain it and flip over how the power works. Yeah. It's uh, a strategic well, the, application of the, of the power dynamic or the binary. The problem with entering into or, I guess, uh, internalizing, to use a uh, hot term, uh, a wildly unstable ideology or process, let's say, of postmodernism, where you're always engaging with deconstructing everything. You're leaving yourself very vulnerable to a, a, an idea that's that will capture you, um, like kind mm -hmm. of it, it can sneak up, maybe not on you, but on the people that you are teaching. There's going to be a way for something to form, to crystallize. And I don't see that there's any way for that not to be inevitable. Now, the problem is, is convincing people that what they are concretizing or what they're causing to happen is a bad outcome. The, and so part of the reason that the evergreen story could be very captivating in light of your research and uh, and probably why Mike and, and you guys have all converged on this is that it kind of shows the possibility of the outcome of accepting these things to be true and and how do you convince people who have adopted this who are second or third generation that this is the outcome and not just an aberration or is it just an aberration ultimately it's it's ultimately hilarious because um i'm about to quote the bible <laughs> and i was about to say it's too bad they've problematized the bible to the point where they can't possibly hear the wisdom that's contained within it, but mm -hmm. you judge a tree by its fruit. Mm -hmm. If you institute these ideas in an institution like Evergreen and the thing melts down like Chernobyl and the whole community around it becomes toxic for who knows how long, uh, the fruit is pretty clear. Now, of course, the, the argument, of course, against that is the no true it wasn't a true application. You know, some corruption came in. Uh, you know, George Bridges did this or that, or he was white <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. He is a man, a white man, so of course it didn't work. If they would have put a person, of, a woman of color in there, uh, then it would have been fine. But this is, this is the, uh, this is a, a, a desperate plea. And the in this case, how do you convince people? It depends on how invested they are in it. If they're already deeply invested in it, as you know, Robin DiAngelo's theory of white fragility and the, the related concepts, you're not going to. They have an entire uh, co cognitive sinkhole that they live mm -hmm. in. I've, I actually have referred to it. Peter likes to call these things cognitive sinkholes. I've referred to them as an island epistemology to mm -hmm. where they've built a fortress around themselves in terms of how ideas can come in and influence their thinking that prevents having to change their mind. It's actually common in cults. It shows up in, in religious thinking a lot as well. Uh, but this so stuff is it, spread into numerous uh, institutions and institutions of knowledge making right. and, and reality defining institutions such as the media. Right. And 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 concomitantly, we're seeing a dramatic drop in 
trust for the media for a lot of people and people stepping away from wanting to engage with it and people not being able to claiming that they don't know how to tell what's true anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so you judge, you judge the tree by its fruits. Um, I, I don't know how many organizations will have to melt down. I don't know how many people will have to be okay. unjustly canceled before people start to realize it. But I think people are starting to realize it. But the way you can convince them is not just by pointing to the example, but by explaining how the theory itself enabled the example to happen. The operative theory that got installed enabled the thing to happen. So you can point to, say, Stalin, and you can say, how did this happen? And you can talk about the theory of authoritarianism and how that does. Or you can talk about the theory of communism and how it actually has come to be understood to fail uh, the necessary components of a functioning market. And so the distribution problems became absolutely an enormous problem. And and then people would not have this if they weren't kept under an iron boot that, that mm-hmm. kept them stuck within it. And so you, once you understand the theory, so you have the, the explanation for why socialism full bore can't succeed, is that it, I'll even add a caveat to that for any socialist listening, without advanced artificial intelligence hmm. cannot without succeed. A hyper-calculation uh, machine. Correct. And, and beyond the capacity of anything that we're, it's not like Walmart's supercomputer can do this, um, which is a good supercomputer. <laughs> the distribution one. problem of the market contains the fact that the agents acting within the market have needs and they have to communicate those needs in some way. So when you try to calculate that, you have an underdetermined problem. Unless you have some mechanism that's feeding that information in, in real time. Maybe if you had super awesome algorithms and a advanced general intelligence uh, that's super intelligent, it could calculate this and you could have, you know, distribution networks that are centrally controlled in some sense that work by mm-hmm. the AGI, not by some political party. Um, but on the other hand, without that, we the, we don't have the means in a centrally planned economy to have sufficient information to answer what goods need to be delivered to what places and what quantities. Mm-hmm. Whereas people buying what they want and need when they want and need it according to their own interests and needs creates a demand uh, space, I'll call it. I was going to say a yeah. curve, but it creates a demand space that is providing that feedback back into the market to the suppliers. So if I open a store and I am selling Pop-Tarts or something and I they sit on the shelf for four months, I know I'm not going to order another batch of those. What the people in the economy want and need is being provided by the choices that they make. And this, was, this is a well-understood phenomenon now that yeah. that's why socialism theoretically can't work. And then when you put it into practice, what do you end up with? Bread lines. Why? Because it doesn't work. And then within the case of like uh, with the case of the, the Soviets, you have also the problem where they decided to have Soviet science, which is just also caused massive famines because the plants don't grow. And you can mm-hmm. explain why that doesn't work if you understand the science of, of biology and horticulture and all of that. Well, it's one thing. And I think the other part of the equation that you've already worked at, it's one thing to explain why it doesn't work. You have an example and then you break that down. But a bigger question is explaining why it's so attractive to people and to right. to get people to reflect on their psychology and to to see where certain mistakes can creep in to their belief system or to their operative schema. 
Right. And so I think that that's the other huge side of the coin. And um, this one <laughs> kind of fragments, if you want me to explain it in terms of social justice. Uh, yeah. There are certain people. So as a system, because it's all about power dynamics and how power dynamics work in society in zero sum ways, no kidding. It's all about creating winners and losers. So there are certain people who become winners in the system. Mm -hmm. And for some of them who aren't thinking in a broader sense, but are thinking in a narrow sense, the attraction is obvious. Yes. I become more enfranchised or even privileged or powerful or whatever with a way to carry a shield that prevents me from being credibly accused of exactly the thing that I'm doing, which is being a bully or having some kind of societal privilege. So I get to turn the tables and now it's my turn. Yeah. The attraction to that is, is obvious. Uh, it also is attractive to people who just have a need to feel special or to be told that their lives are intrinsically meaningful or all of these different things that people might look for psychologically. On the other hand, there is the ability to hack into, as we've seen with essentially every moral panic, every Puritan movement in history, the desire not to be complicit in some evil. So some evil force works in the world and you are participating in it. You are perpetuating sin through your depravity. That was old school Calvinism. Mm -hmm. uh, there's your there's your witch hunts right there. Uh, <laughs> there's Puritanism right there. And or you are participating in a white supremacist society um, by means of enjoying the fruits of your privilege, even if you don't intend to. And so this can trigger a certain uh, guilt complex where people don't want to be a bad person. And if if you can sufficiently weaponize the guilt and vulnerability inducing language and you can package it up, package it up in a palatable enough way to where the theory seems plausible to people who lack other explanations for what's going on. Remember, yeah. people in religious architectures are looking for that phenomenological attribution schema, an explanation for what's going on. Then you can sell the idea to them. So, for example, if, if you were to ask me what was so significant in making this blow up in the past maybe five to eight years, I would point out that it was very difficult as a um, liberal person, which is the side, the left side of the aisle that, that's relevant here, to endure the behavior of the right-wing media and the right-wing politics during Obama's tenure in office, which, of course, I'll get pushed back and yelled at for this, like, it's the worst gaslighting I think I've ever seen. Even if it's mistaken, I can tell you that the lived experience of a liberal during that time was very much that there was a secret hotbed of racism that just bubbled up mm -hmm. from underneath. And you want an explanation for this. And then what does it lead into? The election of Donald Trump using all of this kind of racial and, and sexual uh, language and being excused for all of these transgressions that mm -hmm. normally would have been utterly disqualifying. And so people need an explanation for this. And all of a sudden, critical theory, critical race theory, critical gender theory are sitting right under the yeah. surface saying, guess what? For 50 something years, we've been writing and no one's been listening to us that our society has secret biases baked into it and everybody participates. It's not that you necessarily are racist, which would make you feel terrible. It's that there is a whole racist system that you didn't mean to get 
baked into and now you are complicit with that and here's this program that we call anti-racism that you can take up that has the following tenets and practices and that will allow you to mitigate your your participation in that problem so it offered an explanation as i keep trying to tell people and people can't hear this the the election of donald trump people on the right don't understand this the the the, the election of donald trump was the best confirmation for postmodern social theory that possibly could have happened. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So he's evidence that they were right. And so people flock to it like crazy. Uh, the fact that Obama was so frequently stymied and you see the Republicans, you know, so openly flagrantly flaunting the rules, uh, the normal, not the legal rules, but the, the normal rules of engagement mm -hmm. to, to oppose him and to oppose any of his agenda. And, and, and again, you see this, how is this being allowed to pass? And critical theory is sitting there saying, by the way, our society is actually secretly very sexist. They just put on a nice face. Mm -hmm. Liberal <clears throat> feminism in the 1970s didn't succeed. It just caused the patriarchy to put a nice seeming mask on. The civil rights movement in the 1960s didn't succeed. The racial advancements that followed in the decades after, all those happened according to interest convergence theory, and the race is just put on a nice-seeming mask. Interest convergence theory is a core idea from a, the father of critical race theory named Derek Bell, who said that to speak in general and take the race out of it, to speak in general is that a privileged group never gives a marginalized group uh, opportunities, rights, freedoms, etc., unless it's in their own interest to do so, whether economic, whether uh, social, whether political or whatever. So there's always a cynical motive that was yeah. behind it. And so critical theory is saying, hey, look, we've always been this terrible racist society. Look at our history. What do they always say? Look at our history. Built on a, yeah. the Atlantic slave trade, mm -hmm. Jim Crow, slavery, blah, blah, blah. Same thing. All of you talk about the history of discrimination, which is completely real. You talk about the hangovers of that that history, which are completely real. Yeah. You talk about the ghettoization and how this sets up different populations that have seriously different problems and concerns. All real. Yeah. And then they say. Then they say, you know what? All of that is one constant thing that's never changed, except in terms of how it's been spackled over on the outside. As my dad used to call it when I made my bed, the, the white people and men in power just put frosting on shit. But the shit's still under the frosting. Okay. And so that's how my dad used to say I made my bed. As he, I wouldn't do it right. I just jostled the top blanket till it looked good. And you've put frosting on shit. That's what he would say. Um, so that's the theory. And all of a sudden, these people... Lots of people, desperate for an explanation, horrified that they might be complicit in the problem, jump on and say, you know what? I don't know what's going on here. Something bad's going on here. I don't want it to be happening. And then be told in the right way, with the right message, you actually are part of the issue. And then they're, oh, God. And they, that taps into a, a vein of vulnerability yeah. Which if you we go back to the psychology of religion, how do you affect a religious conversion? You tap into a vein of vulnerability and then you give somebody a pathway out of it. To you give them the pathway to safety. Yeah. So, you know, here's all these bad things are happening in your life. Well, here's the influence of sin. And it's not that you drink too much because of this reason or that reason. It's because you're drawn to sin. 
<laughs> and so if you come to church and you confess your sin in front of the congregation and you pray in front of the congregation and you ask God for, to, to carry you through this, your problems can go away. And all of a sudden, for some proportion of people, they tap that vulnerability the right way and it affects a conversion. So that's how that, that's the mechanism that it seduces people who would be on the, the let's call it losing side of the reorganization of the power dynamics. Mm-hmm. I think personally, and this is you ready for some controversy, Benjamin? Yeah, let's do that. I've been waiting. <laughs> Here we are. <laughs> yeah, nothing controversial so far. I think that what happened was coming through and for very good reasons. We <laughs> get ready to get canceled. We made bigotry too big of a deal. We care too much about it. We are yeah. way too afraid of it. Is it bad? Yes. Is it 47 out of 10 bad or really infinity bad? No, it isn't. All perspective has been lost so that the the mere accusation or the mere whiff of an accusation of, of racism or even some like sidelong con- complicity with a racist system Mm-hmm. is enough to cause people to bend over backwards and scramble away from it like it's a nuclear fire. And it actually makes bigotry and racism stronger. It enacts bigotry and of, racism in effect. Of course. In like five different ways. Of course. Um, I don't know if I can get to five. <laughs> I just picked a number, but several. Uh, on the one hand... Um, it increases identity salience. I think that's the most important one. You're always thinking about it now. If you're afraid, you are constantly have to be afraid that you're going to transgress and offend somebody and therefore prove your complicity with a racist or a sexist system or in some way manifest that and do injury through that, then you're hyper aware of it all the time. But that's exactly what Kimberly Crenshaw called to is the I am black versus I happen to be black distinction. It's yeah. reifying the racism. It also triggers people, on the other hand, to become uh, more willing to be racist, partly because they want to transgress. Some people just want to push the boundaries of what's considered acceptable. In fact, a lot of people do. And that is a time-honored liberal tradition that should be maintained. But on the other hand, if everybody's a racist for something or damn near everybody's a racist for something, why shouldn't I participate? Yeah. The irony is that the religious example I just gave you is exactly it works when you say, oh, well, how is confessing in front of the, the church going to cure you of alcoholism? It turns out that people have a psychological set point. Dan O'Reilly did a, a talk about this a, several years ago when people have a psychological set point for goodness, for their own perception of their goodness. And when you're above that, you strive to be virtuous. Okay. When you, I want to maintain my sense of goodness, my image of goodness with the community. When you fall below that line, it's fuck it. I'm a yeah. bad person. I might as well indulge. Yeah, yeah. This works. Confession puts you in front of a community to where now you've openly said, "I'm. I wish I was better. I'm trying to be better. Hold me accountable to being better. Whether it's a priest or whether it's in a, a congregation or whatever." And in addition to creating something like a support group around you, which can help, it also bumps you back up psychologically into, I have been a failure, but I'm ready to try again and be a success. And so it gets you back above your, your goodness set point that leads you to attempt to affect self-control on yourself, that control element Mm -hmm. plus 
community. I, all this stuff just meshes together. But so why, of, why would um, why would the uh, critical race response to Donald Trump uh, not cause people when they confess their racist sin to uh, to do that in a beneficial way rather than just affect going around policing everybody else? It seems like puritanicalism or whatever it is, the, that fundamental uh, way of interacting with morality is there's there's one way where you work on yourself and you become a better person. There's another way where you go out and you enforce and you shame and you you participate in that behavior. And it yeah, seems like the social justice fundamentalism tips in, in into that direction where it's you have just, Antifa. Oh, it is. It is. It's not just fundamentalism. Even it's authoritarianism. It is yeah, okay. an adoption of a number of principles that the psychology of authoritarianism describes. Conventionalism is a primary one. And eventually authoritarian submission, and authoritarian aggression are, are others that come along with. But ultimately, I mean, to really understand the theory helps you understand why critical race theory lacks the ability to say, okay, you've done better. Okay. Grace is available to you. Redemption is available. Remember interest convergence theory. You only did that. So you can be a good white being good, being white. That's Barbara Applebaum's book on critical uh, pedagogy, critical education theory. So you've only done this because no matter what you do, if you become better, it's reifying your privilege. If you become worse, it's reifying your privilege. If you, yeah, if you become better, then uh, you did it for your own benefit to maintain your privilege and not have to confront um, your underlying racism. If you became worse, you're proving your complicity in that system that you've always had and you've just been waiting to have an excuse to participate in. It is a conspiracy theory with no conspirators. And this is fundamental to the postmodern way of thinking that got taken up in critical theory, which says that. Everything comes down to how language is used to legitimize knowledge. This is insane, I'm telling you, but this is really what postmodern thinking is. Everything comes down to how language is used to legitimize knowledge so that it can affect power, such that those with power maintain theirs over those who don't have it. And it's not an intentional thing. It's not like you have Isaac Newton sitting in, in, in his tower twiddling his fingers and doing his thing and writing down, this is how I'll write physics such that white people will always be able to shoot projectiles. It's not like that. It's that what a society decides to, or a culture in particular is culture, decides to legitimize as true and to exclude from being legitimized as true is itself a cultural artifact that's built in the way it uses language and trains everybody to use language. So that if you throw out some radical idea about race that comes from outside that paradigm, people yeah. just think it's crazy and ignore it. But if that can still be true, that critique of language that, that mankind has come or sorry, people kind or them kind or whatever we're calling it us now, we we've come up with this, this instrument to control and to manipulate reality that's based in words, even based in math. In so far as that system is in harmony with the world, then it doesn't matter if it's a human construct because it's, it's working. So there's like right. a utilitarian way of gauging whether or not a social construct is worth keeping around, is stable, is something that we can pick up again, or it will uh, lead to disaster, or will lead to a, a structure just big enough to collapse upon itself. Right. Utilitarianism so, is part of the system that was created by white men to be able to claim things like that. Benjamin, you are problematic. 
Well, is there no way out of it? Because it, it just seems like... There is no way out of it. There is no way out of it. It is built so that there's no way out of it. And that's why it has to be rejected. And by well, the way, so you why... said this humankind animal thing, whatever. I am below my set point. Man. <laughs> You're just a man. <laughs> no, just man. We are man. We are man. Man has created. I'm below my set. I'm joking, but I'm below <laughs> okay. my set. So we're just going to go back to the to the old school terminology that has all that gravitas. Uh, yeah, well, that's how I write. So I'm, I'm fine with that. I just want to like open it up. No, for, it's silly to problematize years. it. So what you're actually bringing up, though, is the difficult point around the postmodern thinking that's led into the social justice thinking. And the social justice thinking in particular is good at this. And I'm not saying that as a criticism. I genuinely mean that they're good at what they're doing and it could be of great value if they didn't keep screwing it up. Uh, there is a, I would go with what you said, well, yeah, that's true and da, da, da. 5% true, 95% off in the woods. And so it's, it's not whether or not you make a valid observation that's the whole story. It's what you do with the observation after you make it. So that's a major point. The idea that we do construct ideas and tend to exclude ideas that haven't been yet legitimized within the system and that that can create blinders or biases is certainly a real thing yeah. certainly a concern people should be aware of what it is not is this weird novel idea that was came out of french philosophy all of a sudden through these dissidents in the 1960s it, it's an old idea it goes back at least to the enlightenment that was the whole idea is that you know the church was guarding knowledge mm -hmm. and putting blinkers on and not allowing other other perceptions. The idea of, in a sense, speaking truth to power and trying to use methods to legitimize knowledge uh, to to be able to say, you know what, it's not authoritative in the way that you're speaking, but uh, th there are other reasons to consider here. Not only is that certainly true, it's not even new to postmodernism, but then to go radically skeptical with it to the to say that there's no way to attach meaning to language. That's um, Jacques Derrida or to say that there is no way to understand reality because everything is simulacra and simulation. That's John Baudrillard or to say that language always exists in that sense to maintain power over other people. That's. Foucault, and then to step further and say that that power is over identity groups. There's your Kimberly Crenshaw, Judith Butler, um, maybe even Edward Said, the, the post-colonialists, mm -hmm. Gayatri Spivak with her idea of the subaltern. By the mm -hmm. way, speaking of the subaltern, if you know what that is, it's a second-class citizen who is so second-class according to the dominant paradigm that they can't even speak for themselves when they're speaking because they have no hope of being understood. That's canceled people. They are creating a new subaltern class outside of their hmm. own yeah. perspective. Lewis, That's just Lewis an aside. C. Clay, CK or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, that radical divergence from something that's true to this radical interpretation of something that's true is where it goes wrong. And I can elaborate with other examples, if you want, where, they, where the ideas that have come out of, say, social justice epistemology, like white fragility. I actually think white fragility, if you fix it, is a brilliant idea. It's absolutely fascinating the way it's manifested and that it's tied to an identity. Two different things are absolutely cracked, that there's no escape from white fragility except to agree. Got a problem. That's a big problem uh, in the theory. On the other hand, that it's attached to being white. Big problem. But 
the core idea that you could actually carve out of that's fairly brilliant is that you can get locked into an ideological way of thinking and become comfortable in that way of thinking. And when somebody presents information from the outside, it causes the real explanation is cognitive dissonance, but that you, because you've been locked into that way of thinking, you're actually going to react in a way that indicates some fragility. You don't know how to handle it logically or with rational discussion or argument or with even civility. So you lash out or you avoid it or you, you stuff it down or yeah. you apologize around it. I mean, that's, uh, that's not even a new idea though. That's John Stuart that's... Mills. He who only knows his side of the case knows little of that. Yeah. It's this, you have to hear the case from other people and you have to engage with the genuine arguments that was written in the 1850s. Yeah. I think, I don't remember when on the brewery was written, 1850 something, I think. It's not even a new idea, but you take it off in this crackerjack direction that it's like, oh, it's because there's this white supremacy power system that's baked all the way through society that's eternal everywhere and always. And the work of anti-racism is never done because it's this thing that's imminent below the surface and every example shows it. Mm-hmm. And that, that we should should linger on in a second. When you go off into into a, cons- a conspiracy theory here with no uh, conspirators, or everybody's a conspirator, so nobody's a conspirator. Yeah, that's crackerjack. Like a hologram. Yeah. Everybody's got a bit of the conspirator in them, causing the great. Overload. So you have you have now all this heavily influential social theory that's not social science; it's social theory that's not original. And is not even well done. It's it came up with fairly banal or well-established observations, and then ran off with them into mm-hmm. seriously into the marshes, man. Not even the woods. It's like in the it's in these bogs. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's a it's a complete travesty and tragedy at the same time because there's so much insight that could have been usefully applied that just is misspent. Mm-hmm. So, but it, it's caused a, it's caused such a massive, uh, I guess, because the Trump effect or, or a number of different causes that you've already detailed has caused people to all run with it and at least capture all these major uh, institutions with this sure. idea. And and yeah. when you were explaining it, and even Helen Pluckrose, your co-conspirator, is uh, has, has said as she participates in reading these books, she starts to take on that. It it, it kind of molds her, her mind. And when you yeah. were talking about all the, the wrongs of history, it's a very compelling American narrative close to a religion that there's the whites and the blacks, and they are in effect the in this eternal struggle, like some right. sort of Gnostic uh, explanation that's, of reality. That's exactly what this is. Is it's like it's like identity Gnosticism. Yeah, totally. I mean, I can give you an example. I don't remember how old I was when I first read Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States. If you haven't read it, it's a fascinating read. You should read it at some point, but do so with the grain of salt. I had the grain of salt, and I don't remember how I got the grain of salt because I thought hmm. it was in the preface to his book, but it's I have not found it again. Hmm. Um, I did I had read it online. I didn't have a print copy, so maybe it is in the preface of his book. But he says that this is just somewhere somebody had indicated this is just one interpretation to broaden and deepen your understanding. But it's a pretty deep account that you know you could be seen as socialist that. The whole American project has been by big capitalists to screw everybody over, the people in particular being screwed over. And it's really eye opening. And there's a very susceptible or very, very seductive idea that people are very susceptible to that they've been lied to all along. The powers that be by their senses or that's the the essence of the hot take. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They're being lied to. There's been this huge blossoming in the past. Maybe it goes back longer. But since we've had social media 
the whole like the original hot take wasn't some nasty uh you know social theory thing it was always um everything you've always been taught about gravity is wrong you know there that was the clickbait title everything you know about the moon is false yeah. and this it's very seductive to believe that you've been lied to the whole time so because it promises like, a cheap awakening exactly uh, an awakening and so when you see when you see people like Derek Bell saying that one or any any actually go all the way back you can go back to before even the Frankfurt school <laughs> which is famous for its its uh, Marxist approach to critical theory uh, mm-hmm. even before them you see critical theology starting with like Walter Rauschenbusch and things like this uh, early 1900s you look back and it's always the same idea is like we need to go revise history to write it from a different perspective that's been excluded and marginalized so that you see how you've been lied to all along. So you've been getting screwed over or somebody you care about has been getting screwed over or the, the country's not been making good on its its promises or whatever it happens to be. Yeah. So yeah. Um, when you see that, you know, it, it should raise some eyebrows. And I, I fully agree with the idea that you, I just said you should go read Howard Zinn's book. Uh, but again, you should read it in the, the, the great, with the grain of salt that I was fortunate enough to have before I read it, that it's a yeah. single piece of the puzzle. It's not the story. Mm-hmm. There are parts to the history. The, the, the statement that history is written by the winners is of course true. Yeah. So it's written from the dominant paradigm or the dominant discourses. And often, especially before where we were less rigorous with our historic, historical methods, it was written in order to make the people in, involved look good and, and so on. So you have to read these things with a grain of salt. But on the other hand, you have to realize that there were other factors in, in play. I feel ultimately, having read a lot over the past week or so, of, not by Foucault, but about Foucault and his writing, Michel Foucault, um, that much of what he did, if not nearly all of what he did, was to take the history of a thing, historiography is what he thought he claimed to be doing ultimately, take a history of a thing or of an idea, madness, for example, is a big one, sexuality, and to trace it, and this is a very postmodern thing to do, and show how there were all these terrible things connected to the history of that idea, and therefore you can't have a stable idea of truth because it was wrong, 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 we're probably wrong still now, and people were using it to do these terrible power-based things. And so what he's doing is he's looking at the long view of what legitimately deserves to be called progress, scientific progress, moral progress, and how how ideas and even science are in the state are organized and put. And instead of saying... You know, we were partway there and screwed it up because we were partway there. He says, everything's terrible. It's always just a function of power. It's the most cynical reading of the ideas that of, of progress that you could possibly have. Mm-hmm. And that's what sits at the core of this approach to, to critical analysis. Okay, so here's an idea. So uh, John Stuart Mill says that you should, you know, if you don't know you need to speak with other ideas. You need to take in other narratives into account. That right. is and very from exi- experts from people who truly believe them and are excellent proponents of them. Okay. But that's very exhausting. It's very exhausting for one person to be a master of two narratives. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be very attractive for somebody to just inherit a narrative that is proven to work through, through history. So they can do their little bit of life through that. Yep. And, and so totally. the problem with the cynical narrative, it seems to me, is that it exhausts you. 
even if you only have that one narrative in a worse exhaustion than being able to hold a narrative and, and allow it to be attacked or allow it to, to doubt, to, to be doubted, to take mm-hmm. doubt as your core narrative is going to drain you of, of firmness, of conviction, of, of energy, of, of light, of joy, of all these different human attributes that, that would, yeah. I think, make a fuller human being in the end. Yeah, I agree with that. I, uh, this is actually why I press the idea that we're too engaged with politics. We need to be less engaged with politics, not more. Um, you should be generally sensible about what's going on and aware of what's going on if you're going to be a voting member of the public. But mm-hmm. to be deeply involved with the minutiae, the day-to-day squabbles and battles, oh, he said this, they said that, here's a strategy that might be behind it. Let's listen to a pundit who's trying to tell us why that's happening. You're just too involved. Like, there's other life. There's so much other life. Get off cable and get offline. Go outside. Well, I again, advocate no more than 10 minutes a day for most people. <laughs> because it's not healthy. And in fact, there yeah. was a recent study that came out. And of course, it's a recent study. I don't know the rigor. But it showed that the more people engage, there's like this U-shaped thing. And it's the more you engage with political information, whether it's media, whether it's social media, the less informed you are about the issues, the people who had the most accurate views about what's going on were the people who paid the least attention. It's because had a toe in it. Yeah. If you care too much, you get sucked into whatever narrative you feel like your side is about Hmm. and the social identity side kicks in and then you put on your own blinkers and don't listen to what other people are saying and can't hear across the divide because you see how dangerous and evil that other view is. Um, okay. But so somebody I, like you, who's engaged full time with this, uh-huh. this is, this is your career. Yeah, how do me. you, how do you keep yourself, uh, unblinded? I or don't, do you just have to, you have to admit it or just, I'm, not worry I about just it? have to, I just have to recognize that it's a threat and try to unplug and get away from it and do other things and see what happens when I do. Um, I need to go hang out with other people sometimes and see how they think and talk and kind of unplug. I recently went and visited with some people and realized that who people, many of whom are online a lot and very active. And I was like, wow. And I looked into this later. It turns out it's kind of a described effect is that when you get involved in all this, you become very one dimensional. Um, and I was like sitting there the whole time thinking, not judging the people I'm with. I was having a good time, but then I was like participating in it. I was like, oh my God. I'm part of the problem. And so having that ability to unplug and step back, I think, is also not only psychologically extremely helpful, but it's also very helpful for clarifying your epistemology. So for me, you know, I'm very involved in it, but mostly what I'm very involved in at this point is trying to answer some questions about how the theory works. I'm trying to understand even more deeply how people who have adopted this line of thought in various degrees, because most people aren't theorists, they haven't read Foucault, most people who are social justice warriors have no idea what Foucault wrote, but they have adopted a lot of the principles and ideas that have filtered down through the, the both scholarship, activism, and teaching that, that have come from that. Um, I want to understand how that theoretical framework works, but understanding a theoretical framework is, a, is really different from, oh, Trump said this today, and Nancy Pelosi shot back with, and the Justice Democrats sure. are, ah, yeah. that stuff, and then paying attention to, well, huh. Hannity interpreted it this way, and and yeah. Rachel Maddow said this, and the, Chris Hayes started yelling, and, and, and Walmart hasn't and, issued a press release yet, and... Yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah, silence of Taylor Swift on this is deafening. <laughs> 
Exactly. Uh, that's a different ball game. And in fact, people, yeah, I think perceive that I'm much more active on Twitter than I have been for a few months now. I did get sucked in for a while, really badly, and mm. it was definitely toxic both to my mental health and yeah. to um, my ability to see clearly what was going on. But I, I mostly, I mostly am sitting back in my castle and firing my gun now, and then I go do my own thing. It's like boom, cannon shot. I send a tweet. Uh, maybe I'm aggrandizing that a bit, but then I, I just go and do other stuff. Yeah. One of my favorite things to do, sorry, followers, I do love to engage with you if you're seeing this. I really do. I really do enjoy that, um, is I'll send tweet mute conversation back to back right away. I'll never okay. see a notification from the thing I send. Okay. I just yeah. send it, get it out there because I want. I had a thought that crossed my mind or I observed a thing, make a point that I feel was important to get out into the world and then mute the conversation so that it doesn't draw me in and bother me all day. Mm. I try not to be too engaged with that. Because I've become more and more aware of how it's it's dangerous, but for me and for Helen and Helen, of course, gets pulled into Twitter a lot. It's, that's like uh, that's the least secret secret ever. Um, yeah, the thing is being immersed in the scholarship and just trying to understand uh, principles of how it happens, and then being able to step out and understand psychologically maybe what's going on or sociologically what's going on with it is a different thing. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. So that helps, I guess. But I do recognize, you know, I'm in a dangerous place with how much time I spend with it. And also, I don't want to get in this position like you shouldn't pay attention to politics. I'll pay attention for you. Just listen to me. Yeah. Uh, I would just say that most people are more interested in it than they need to be. Yeah, It feels well, more alarming. And to, to tailor your level of engagement with your level of interest. And if you feel like something is missing, go study it, become expert in it and speak about it and get involved. But if you really are just there because you're bored it's probably yeah. not helping you or many other people at all and what's happening on twitter the less people there's a thing that came out a couple of was it maybe it's in the new york times so um that was the problem isn't twitter it's that we take twitter seriously yeah well to go back to what you were saying about the religion um uh analogy but a religion at least let's just take the catholic religion once it went through rome and ate up everything people mm -hmm. lived their lives within it and it didn't become the whole of their lives they unless you were a priest right. you just lived within it and i wonder if the woke religion um is a cult because it's trying to cause people to live everything through it in a in a bad way where it starts to eat up all this processing power so that they can't have a rich full life and maybe that has to do not just with the woke religion but any sort of virulent um uh i guess uh parasitic uh, ideology um has the ability uh, yeah. of not allowing you to just have the ideas that situate you in the world where you have an end of time you have a beginning of time um, and then you have a connection to moral activity, but then you can go ahead and do something creative within that. You can make a sculpture, you can live a full life, you can have a family and not go around judging each other constantly. Yeah, yeah. The moral panic element of Purit Puritanism is, is definitely a thing. And I think that's why it's been rightly identified by a number of people already. I'm hardly original in saying this, that um, one of the worst ideas that's come down this pike has been um, the personal is political. The objective becomes to politicize everything. Everything, everything. Everything. The goal is to make everything political so that that's the lens through which you analyze 
each thing. And yeah. from your body weight to your sexuality, to your eye color, to your skin color, to your accent, everything gets eaten up and, and cast into this arena of, of depersonalization and ultimate uh, politicization. Right. And that's, that's definitely an element of a puritanical cult and that proceeds upon uh, the feeling of a moral panic. So I think that that's um, certainly an element and it's certainly an element we see here. It's the, it's the mechanism by which an institution like Evergreen or others could be taken over as well is that you start coming in and you start to politicize things um, and you politicize a little more and you keep somebody that could you define what, what does it mean to politicize? I just want to, 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 to make it to make it about some political dimension to come in and say, oh, well, resources the, and, and power and redistribution. Sure. Yeah. Mostly. Yeah. Resources, power, distribution, access, et cetera. And okay. so mostly here, because the, the woke thing is really about things like identity, it's an identity politicking things. So you come in and you try to find some way to say, oh, that's problematic to people with my identity because, or that's, yeah, uh, this is actually a racial You're issue. literally not adding anything to the discussion, only detracting from you, it. Well, you're turning it into a different discussion about okay. hidden politics within it. Yeah. And so you are hijacking the discussion. And so you'll, you'll have a, you only need a very small proportion of, of zealots and a slightly larger proportion of what would are literally called sympathizers yeah. uh, or sympathetic partisans who will then participate in the mm -hmm. uh, in the thing and say, wait, maybe there's this thing. And so what happens is an issue comes up. It becomes political. Some of them don't stick. Maybe many of them don't stick, but then some, something does and it becomes a controversy mm -hmm. and that causes people to take sides and then it becomes mm -hmm. other issues start getting dragged in. Once people mm -hmm. take sides, they start politicizing the issues themselves. And so eventually everything becomes about the politics and you can't yeah. think about other things. For most people, this is exhausting and they don't yeah. care. And they're yeah. like, I didn't come to college to talk about this crap all day. And yeah. so then they get yelled at for that's also a political statement, according to the idea. Yep. But then they get they ultimately back out. So I can tell you within the atheist movement, what happened was people backed out partly because they were afraid they were going to get accused of something. It was all mostly at that point sexism and the kind of predecessor of Me Too that was going on in the atheist movement. So everybody was scared to go to conferences because what if you accidentally do something or don't do something and you get accused of uh, sexually harassing a woman or raping her or something. Uh, I know joke, people used yeah. to go and take their kids with them as an alibi hmm. to their conference, to their professional conference. So that starts to limit your ability to network. You start to problematize the big names. Richard Dawkins said this terrible sexist, sexist thing. We can't put him on stage or the whole conference is sexist, yeah. uh, blah, 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 whatever it happens to be. And in, we're going to put some of our people up instead, and we want more people who are talking about this, these political issues within the movement to take, get more prominence. And if you don't, it's because you're sexist. Politicize, politicize, politicize. And most people are like, you know what? I didn't come to see this. I wanted to see Dawkins talk about atheism. Or I didn't want to listen to a bunch of political intra-movement squabbling crap. I didn't want to get a moral lecture today. I don't want to get accused of things. So they just don't go. They just back out. They stop participating. Unless they're forced to participate, they don't. The ones who are forced to draw lines and make things even more political, this is the, the dynamic that rots an institution that starts politicizing everything. And then the rest drop out. If the institution depends upon that middle who drops out for some reason or another, mm -hmm. in the case of the atheist movement, it's conferences and such, it's financial. 
you can't have a conference if people don't come. You can't afford it. They're expensive things to operate. So, and what's the point of having a conference if people don't come? You know, why is why is some significant person going to come give a speech for an audience of 50? They're not going to. And so the whole thing just collapses under the weight of it. And so when yeah. you depend upon, say, a exhausted middle to be able to say, you know what, this is unreasonable, but they've felt like if they're going to get attacked for doing so and drawn into the mess that they never wanted to be in in the first place and they withdraw, you don't have that critical mass of people willing to say, you know what, this is unreasonable that yeah. builds the barrier and stops the thing from from going critical mass and spiraling out of control. And, and if we're talking about a corporation, then the corporation through the hiring department institutes these anti-bias trainings. Trump gets elected. Let's just say Google is just filled with everybody's like uh, going around and, and throwing mud at the conservatives. Um, eventually, they're going to start to self-select for people who believe this is what happened to the academy. They start yeah. to self-select people who are a little bit more radical than them because that's that's better than somebody who's less radical than you. And then, and you, and then you have these departments. Class. And and what? And that sympathizer class, even if they aren't, they do select some proportion of people okay. who are like minded and more radical. They much more select people who are going to be sympathetic to the views okay. and not rock the boat. So yeah. you end up creating the exact perfect storm that undermines and destroys the institution from within. Yeah. And then, like I said, so you can use Google and it, whatever we can have, have a woke corp. We'll just make up a fake corporation, woke corp. Right. And it's the wokest corporation ever. Everybody's the most woke possible. And all it takes is one person to come in and be like, eh, don't you think that's a little bit racist, though? And if it sticks, maybe they have to say it a thousand times to a thousand things before one sticks. The second one sticks. Boom. All of a sudden, that whole process begins. Yeah, and the people yeah. who have hot, yeah. you at that point, you're going to have mostly sympathizers. And so it becomes yeah. an emergency that has to be dealt with through force and massive revolutionary changes. And yeah. ultimately, I wish that I was making this up. I know I sound like a nut when I say it, but you can actually go read their literature. It's been from the beginning. The point is to create those conditions so that it foments and generates the revolution. Yeah, but the revolution never amounts to anything but a worse authoritarian state than the one you had to begin with. I'm just going to touch my nose here for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Like, maybe you're on it, you know? No, um, I mean, this is exactly what you described happened at Evergreen. And it was one little uh, event that was solid enough to be taken by everybody as an ultimate racist event, which was lied about. It wasn't even a real event. I'm not talking about the Brett Weinstein thing. That that was something in, in the periphery. What was this? Mm -hmm. These these two kids needed to go give a report voluntarily to the police that was called that they were taken out of their rooms um, uh, and forced to give a confession. And then that sparked that whole revolutionary moment. And then what you mm -hmm. had directly following that is the uh, administration shutting down communication, uh, si uh, siloing everybody, and then imposing mm -hmm. a whole, the worst order possible on the entire institution. And then, and then somehow making like this rosy, uh, you know, this literal frosting on shit that is their marketing campaign to, to make it seem like it's this wonderful place to be when everybody's feeling incredibly stifled there and nobody's right. feeling yeah, served, even the woke people. There's a few ways to affect something like that, which one is a top down thing. And then, you know, everybody knows who the bad guy is. But yeah. another one is this hollowing out of the middle. Mm -hmm. You completely hollow out the middle. You hollow out that large population who stand against it and say, you know what? No. Yeah. 
this is a bridge too far. If that group isn't there or isn't going to participate, then all of a sudden you're going to have massive either revolution or collapse or something like that. And everybody's Mm -hmm. staring around and saying, how could this happen? How could an organization of thousands of people bow to the demands of eight or whatever it happens to be? And the reason is because the overwhelming majority have been somehow bent into being unwilling to say, wait a minute, no. Yeah. And how do you, and how do you reclaim it? By the way, is yeah. you wake that. I don't want to. I got wake them back up. Sorry. Okay, We're no, not that's fine. That you way. have to be a revolutionary to, to end the revolution, you, right? You, you have to be a shay shay. I don't think so. I think you have to create the space in which that majority feels safe enough and willing enough to engage again. To engage how? By saying no. You don't have to do a revolution. You just have to okay. say too far. Yeah. Stop. And so it's not a crazy thing. Um, I'm not saying like the counter revolution. In fact, I hope there's not a counter revolution. That'd be a nightmare. It's just revolution after revolution after revolution. They're all, it's where are you going? Now you're swirling the, the drain at that point. Mm-hmm. What you need is you need the broad base middle who has mostly disaffected to realize now's my moment to just say no. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, I think we completely agree. I mean, you know more than me, and some points were lost on me, but I think... Not all things. <laughs> what does your shirt mean? Is this a sacred uh, Masonic uh, atheist symbol? You don't know. Uh, it's a rock band, isn't it? Or it is Assassin's not. Creed? That's closer. Let's play the game. <laughs> we're gonna, your viewers are going to make fun of you forever. <laughs> it's, Assassin's Creed is closer, but wrong. One more try? Uh, 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 so you know uh, it's in the video game realm now. Well, it's it's not Skyrim. No. Oh, that's it's, it's in a sense Egyptian closer. I'd, I'd give you. It is Legend of Zelda. Oh, okay. I don't play Nintendo. Oh, well, I don't either, but I did in the <laughs> 80s when it came out. <laughs> and I thought it was always a really cool franchise, so I've participated in uh, thinking it's a cool symbol for a long time. That's yeah. great. What's uh, what's next with you and Helen and Peter, if I may ask? And, and oh Mike, boy! If I may ask. Oh boy, do we have some stuff going on, man? Um, a lot. So let's drop a few things, kind All of right. in rapid succession. Peter okay. and I have a book coming out in September. That's a book that we wrote while we were writing all those papers. Um, that titles. How to have impossible conversations. Ooh. It is a completely different subject but it's the goal is how do you talk to people who disagree with you morally politically or whatever and in what context well whatever context how do you just sit down and have a nice meal or a beer with them and get along how do you build friendships how do you just communicate and survive family dinner that your crazy uncle won't shut up how do you change their mind if that's what you're up or that that's what you're about all these different kind of conversational techniques to talk across more on political divides is what Mm -hmm. the book is about so that's september 17 coming soon um, you can pre-order it now if you're interested. Uh, on Amazon, you should. On, I'm not going to pick um, okay. one brand or another at Anywhere. all. Okay. But, yeah, it's available <laughs> for pre-order right now. Um, I'm not supposed to pick those things. Apparently, they track that and get mad if you select one over another. Okay. Uh, so whatever. Uh, yes, I mean you know where it's, where to find books that okay. do pre-orders. Um, Helen and I are writing a book which we are finalizing now. Uh, should come out in the spring 
uh, probably March, I think. And it is explaining how postmodern theory evolved into social justice and why that matters and how to understand why social justice advocates think the way they do from a theoretical perspective, going all the way back to its roots in the postmodern theory, but not before its roots in postmodern theory. If you want to trace where postmodern theory came from, maybe look at Stephen Hicks or some other people have looked at that. We're not doing that. Okay. We're just going from from there forward to explain social justice as a phenomenon. Um, Peter's starting another book himself about taking on how uh, social justice education theory and what's called critical pedagogy have come to be established in education and to mm -hmm. write a book for how to educate in that line, but that's very, very new and hasn't developed very far yet. Okay. And the four of us, Mike is of course working on the documentary about what we did and his other film projects, youtube.com slash Mike Nana, you should go there. And um, the four of us together are starting to come out forward and starting to build, we're, we're trying to build a foundation and even a media site around it that will aggregate our materials and start to provide people who want to take this fight up in their sphere, whether they are lawyers, whether they're educators, whether they're people on a knitting forum, whatever it happens <laughs> to be. And they want to, they want to go figure out how to deal with these problems, understand them, and then start to address them in their own community to give people that sense of this is what's going on. This is why it goes wrong. This is what we need to do about it. And here are the resources for you to go fight those on terms you understand better. We're going to start building that material and start putting that out really soon. So we have some big, big things coming down the, the line regarding those. And we'll see, hopefully that will um, start to provide people with the materials they need to be able to take the fight to their own corners of the world. So this grievance studies website, sorry if that's not the right term. Uh, it's, is that, it's not. But does it have a name, a domain name yet, or not is it, yet? Okay. Not yet. It will soon. We'll be announcing that pretty soon. We're building okay. it out now, and okay. uh, I mean, I think we have purchased a number of domains. I know we have purchased a number of domains, but it's not <laughs> certain which one will be the final one. And there will actually end up being two. Like I said, we're building a, a media thing, and we're building a foundation, okay. uh, a proper nonprofit foundation with it. Great. And are you guys going to go on tour across uh, the globe? The I have tour, a feeling perhaps? going to speak will be a part of that. Yeah. The, okay. One of the goals of the educational mission of the foundation is to go talk. Mm -hmm. Maybe I broke up again. No, I'm hearing you. Perhaps. Did you hear me? Yeah. Okay, good. Because we're having a thunderstorm and my internet gets dodgy when we have thunderstorms. It is flickering, but that might have been the two grams of acid I took before we hit this uh, record button. But um, I don't know anything about acid, but I think that's a large dose. Um, I, I was kidding anyways. I, I think that would be a pretty fair amount, but whatever gets me through the day, right? Um, you do you, man. Well, thanks so much for coming on. This has been a great ride, and I enjoy your content, and I'm glad that uh, that you guys were able to investigate the Evergreen uh, situation and, and that somehow that story is dovetailed with, with your guys' story. At least Mike's done stuff, and, and you guys it, met it up with totally Brett and Heather. And... It totally does. It is the clearest example of the institutionalization of mm -hmm. the newest iteration of social justice mentality with all of its little Kafka traps and its inability mm -hmm. to disagree 
and how it can hollow out an organization and showing what happens when you put it into practice. Mm -hmm. So when you go, you know, try to figure out what you want to do with what you want in your company, when you go figure out what your association wants to have these kind of views mm -hmm. at the leadership level, if you want to put it into politics, Evergreen's a test case. It's like a mm -hmm. little microcosmic world that took on full bore social justice. And then once that happens, it's only a matter of time until the spark comes and... Mm -hmm. I, it didn't really like generate a revolution. It just kind of burned itself to the ground. It really well, it was pretty kind of small a... to begin with. So, well, yeah, it's pretty sad. Is is ultimately what it what it is um, mm -hmm. that that happened. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks a lot, James. You have a good sure. day, and we'll keep in touch. I look forward to it. All right, man. Bye. Okay. Bye. I'm awkward <laughs> as hell. <laughs> I love it. <laughs>